And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with me today is Oz Guinness, a writer and social critic. And Oz, it's great to have you with us today. My pleasure to be with you. You know, I've heard of you before, and I've heard you uh, do a number of interviews and thought, well, it'd really be nice to be able to talk with you a little bit on the air here at Redeemer. Our listeners uh, live primarily in in the East Coast area. Uh, We have some listeners in Maryland, um, say to the west of New York City and northern New Jersey, and certainly the Mid-Hudson Valley of New York State. One of the concerns, I would say, of our listeners is that of uh, religious freedom and uh, the increasing, um, I don't know, the increasing involvement of big government in our lives when we really want to have uh, freedom to, to worship God, to, to live for Him, and um, not be taxed to death. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, I think you wrote a book recently. You've written a number of books, but one is uh, The Global Public Square, How Do We Live With Our Deepest Differences?, and maybe we could start there, Oz. Um, what is the what is the thrust of that book? What are you talking about there in the global public square? Well, I argue that one of the world's most urgent issues right across the world is the challenge of how we live with deep differences, especially when those differences are religious and ideological. Now, as you look at the world situation, the country that's had the most nearly perfect solution is the United States. But the tragedy is that after 50 years of culture warring here, coming to a climax under the Obama administration, America is turning its back on its great tradition of religious freedom, squandering its heritage, and failing to produce a good answer as a model for the rest of the world. That's what my book's about. So I'm arguing for a constructive solution to the challenges, not only of the culture wars, but of some of the problems around the world. Yes, um, that's interesting because um, one of the questions that comes to my mind is, okay, we want to have religious freedom. We recognize there's a there's an increased diversity, and um, how do you bring the two together? I think that's what your book is talking about. How do you bring these two together? Um, big differences, and yet um, we learn to get along with each other, I guess. Well, the best of the American past shows you that you need to have religious freedom, freedom of conscience, which, of course, for your listeners, it's important to underscore, includes people of religious faiths, but also secular faiths. In other words, all worldviews, what's often called religious beliefs, and the nuns, the so-called nuns. But the challenge is to provide freedom of conscience for everybody without exception. Whereas you can see the going trend in this country is for some people to press for a sacred public square, as it's called, where one faith is somewhat privileged and others are second class, like the people on the Christian conservative side arguing for school prayer. And on the other side, you have what's called the naked public square, where you have certain secularists, certain strict separationists, and certain liberals trying to exclude all religious voices in the public square. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is highly illiberal. Now, my book, I argue that what's called a civil public square, in other words, People of all faiths and no faith, as they pretend, uh, have freedom of conscience to enter and engage public life. But you've got to work out what that actually means so you don't have chaos. In other words, everybody has the freedom, but you have a politically agreed framework 
of what is just and free for all sorts of people of other faiths, too. In other words, a right for a Christian is a right for a Jew, is a right for an atheist, right for a Mormon, and so on and so on. And you have to teach all of them what Tocqueville calls the habits of the heart in high school and so on through civic education. You have to teach people what it means to respect other people's positions, but to disagree peacefully and persuasively, not coercively. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective. I'm sure you are too. And you realize um, we can't we can't tell a person uh, how they're going to live. We we can share with them the gospel, the good news, uh, or the biblical principles and God's law. But it's really up to them how they want to live their life. Um, in one of the uh, one of the confessions of, of the Reformed churches, uh, it's very interesting. There's this. There's this uh, sentence where it says, we don't bind the conscience where God has left it free. And I think that also goes along in part with some of what you're saying here. No, absolutely. You can see that religious freedom as a whole concept came, the first mention of it in history is by Tertullian in the second century. And the second big mention was by Lactantius at the time of the Emperor Constantine, and he was tutor to the Emperor's son. But modern religious freedom, because sadly the Catholic era was an incredible uh, black mark on the Church. We were the worst perpetrators of oppression, coercion, forced conversions, things like that. And modern religious freedom goes back to the Reformation. Not all of it, sadly, but you see people like Roger Williams, who stood for freedom of conscience for everybody. Now, that was a consistent application of, say, Martin Luther's stand. Here I stand, so help me God. I can do no other. That is the dictates of conscience. But sadly, in the early days of the Reformation, even many of the Reformers didn't grant freedom of conscience for people they disagreed with. And it took someone like Roger Williams to put a better position on the map. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we're coming up to a break. Uh, today, on the phone line with me is Oz Guinness. And we're really talking about how do we live with our deepest differences um, before the break, Oz, I'm just wondering if if you could help us review just a piece of history. Um, during the um, culturally turbulent times of the 1960s, how did that, I guess you could call postmodernism, um, affect some of the confusion that, that we see today? Well, you can see the culture warring on this issue started in the early 1960s, actually through Madeleine Murray O'Hare, and her school prayer cases. Many people, including myself, we didn't see the birth of postmodernism. You know, we can see it in the 70s, but the seeds of it in the 60s, where it really began, through people like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, and so on, many Christians didn't see it then. Now, it's pretty obvious today. In fact, some of the worst of it's come and gone, thank God. Mm. But you can see that it undermined the whole notion of truth and justice and freedom. So you read Jacques Derrida, any text or the meaning of anything, including the Scriptures or the First Amendment or whatever, it's undecidable. In other words, you can have so many interpretations, you can't come down on any clear one. And you have an absolute chaos in terms of meaning. And it's just one of the factors today which, by undermining truth, undermining meaning and things like that, reduces human rights to a power game. And, of course, that's what our gay extremists have done today in their zero-sum mentality, overriding all the rights of those who disagree with them, 
they've reduced human rights to a power game, and that's incredibly dangerous. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Well, we do need to take a short break. Mm. And uh, on the other side of the break, maybe we can talk a little bit more about you know how you see us fleshing this out. How do, how do we live with our deepest differences? Today, my guest is uh, Oz Guinness. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today on the program is Oz Guinness. We're talking about the notion of how do we live with our deepest differences We have many worldviews in this big globe of ours, and even here in the United States, uh, it seems that there's more diversity perhaps than there was back uh, at the turn of the century, well, not this century, but the previous one. Yet we want to live in peace with all men, as the Scripture says. And uh, we, we really want the concept of not binding the conscience where God has left it free, and so, Oz, um, help me here. I'm I'm struggling with the idea of, you know, from a Christian perspective, I don't think we have a problem with granting freedom to other people that don't believe the way we do. What I'm worried about is the people that don't believe the way we do. Uh, you mentioned the power game. Uh, how do you try to convince people to live at peace when this this power game is is in play? I guess. Well, Dan, I think some of us, in other words, our fellow Christians, do have a problem with people who are different. And I would argue you have the danger of a naked public square, all religion out of public life, that's the left-wing danger. Mm -hmm. The right-wing danger, the conservative danger, is more the sacred public square. We want to be privileged because in the past, the Christian faith was the heart of the consensus. But it's gone. But some of the Christian right talk as if they want to just hang on to power and rear reimpose the vision of the past, as I said, through notions like Christian school prayer in public schools. So there are some, for instance, when I did the Williamsburg Charter 25 years ago, I got death threats for six months from some people who are the extreme, extreme Christian right, they might even have been Christian survivalists, because of the granting of freedom of conscience to non-Christians. So there are some of our people, but you're right, that's not the current danger. The current danger 
is are the gay extremists, and even some of the gay activists are concerned by their fellow gays. Because you see, say, the Mozilla case this, this last week and so on, some gays have declared a zero-sum war. Any right that disagrees with their right must be overridden. Well, that's sheer power play, and it's kind of Stalinist, brown-shirt Nazi tactic, and we've got to stand up against that. Now, the sad thing is, many of the younger Americans today don't know the Founding Fathers, they don't know history, they don't appreciate a principled view of religious liberty. So now it's being painted as merely a political issue to get at Obama, or a cover for discrimination. Whereas the fact is, religious freedom, as you said earlier, going back to conscience, is pre-political, it's foundational. Mm. It's something that's inherent in human nature. Uh, it, it's a human right, not a civil right only. So there's an incredibly dangerous moment where through ignorance, through neglect, through opposition, America's birthright liberty, first freedom, freedom of conscience, is being undermined and thrown out. It's an extraordinary moment. Yeah, well put. I'm just now thinking about, not that I even have the ability to do this, but maybe maybe my son's will or daughter, uh, how do we construct a, a civil public square? Uh, we recognize the differences exist, uh, but we don't want to be at each other's throat. We want the peace to be in society so that I can go to church on Sunday and, and mm-hmm. worship the Lord, and my neighbor down the street, who perhaps is gay, uh, has no interest, perhaps, in going to church on Sunday, but we still want to uh, live at peace with one another. How is this done? Well, Dan, remember that gay rights are not religious freedom rights. In other words, it could be an atheist who's also a gay. And gay rights are civil rights. You've got to distinguish between human rights, like freedom of conscience, and civil rights, which are rights because America and certain states have deemed them to be so, but they're, they're different. When, so gay rights are not themselves religious liberty. We've got to be clear on that. But here's the key thing. As you said, conscience, and Roger Williams says, the Lord does not, quote, rape our conscience, and we should never coerce anyone else's conscience. So everyone has the freedom to enter and engage public life on the basis of their faith. But there are always two qualifications. One, when our free exercise of our own faith touches other people or other things. For instance, someone who has the right to follow witchcraft, which I think is evil, but they have that right to believe it. They have no right, say, to sacrifice a baby, as they do in West Africa, or even to sacrifice a cat. You know, that's touching other people and other things. So our rights are limited both by the rights of other people and by the concerns of the public good. Now, we're talking, though, my book is not about public life. It's about the public square, which is only one part of public life. And the public square is where citizens come together to deliberate, debate, and decide the issues of common public life. Now, in that area, we're all free to come into the public square. And if we want our ideas to prevail, say, over abortion or the economy or international relations or marriage, we have to win. This is democracy. You have 51% of the winners. And if we don't persuade and then prevail, we can't expect our ideals to be passed and become law. And the fact is, many Christians are not persuasive. They haven't tried to persuade. 
they just preach at people or picket or pronounce or, or whatever rather than persuading. And that's a huge deficiency in the Christian community. So you take something in the past where we were terrific, like the abolition of slavery. Wilberforce persuaded and persuaded and persuaded and eventually won. And when he won the hearts and minds of the country, his position was passed into law. And we've got to do the same thing today with pro-life issues, pro-traditional marriage issues, and so on. We can't just cling to the past. We have to enter, engage, persuade, and then hope to prevail. It's tragic of a tiny community like gays, or less than 2% of America, can outweigh millions and millions and millions of Christians. So, you know, maybe up to 80% of America, certainly well over 60, and so on. So we've got to learn to persuade. And then, of course, we've got to respect other... Everyone has the right to believe what they believe. When it comes to conscience, that right to believe is absolute. But as soon as you come to behavior rather than belief, it's qualified, as I said, by those two concerns, the rights of other people and the concerns of the public good. Well, that's helpful, and it helps us uh, distinguish here. Um, Something you said is really key, and that is to sufficiently become persuasive um, to to enter, um, actually be with the person, engage in conversation, and hopefully persuade to a better worldview. And I think at the base of all this is the recognition that we are made in the image of God, uh, and we're not to curse one another, we're not to uh, mistreat one another, because that image of God is there. And we have a clear teaching of our Lord calling us to love our enemies and speak mm. the truth, with love. Yes. So when Christians, like, say, some of the Christian right, demonize their enemies or stereotype them, they're not living up to our Lord's commands. But what, what I was saying, persuasion is one of the huge missing elements. And the old word, of course, is apologetics. And you go back to, say, the Apostle Paul, when he's in the synagogue, he preaches from the Torah, the Old Testament. But when he's out on Mars Hill, he refers to Cretan poets and philosophers. And we should have the same ability to be able to persuade people, whether we're talking to kids or adults or talking to atheists or Muslims, knowing how to be flexible in our communication. And the whole sort of recipe, formulaic style, one-size-fits-all evangelism and apologetics is terrible. Jesus never spoke to two people the same way, mm. and nor should we. And so we should throw out all the canned methods and learn to be persuasive, talking to everyone exactly where they are in each case. Mm. It is interesting to read the Gospels and really look at the person of Jesus. And sometimes he will be very surprising uh, to you, to me. Uh, You'll say, oh, I couldn't have predicted that. But it's exactly as you described, that um, depending on the person who he's talking to, he knew just the right approach, um, just the right content that, that fit the situation. Uh, not extraneous nonsense, but something that met that person's heart. No, exactly. Uh, tell us about yourself a little bit, Oz. Uh, we have maybe um, maybe five minutes or so to go. Someplace I recall reading that you were you were born in China. I was born in China. My grandparents and my parents were medical missionaries. So I was born during the war with Japan, which is a horrendous time, in which my two brothers were killed in a mm. not killed, they died in a terrible famine in which five million died. Mm. And when I was a little older, I left China when I was nine, 
I remember the climax of the Chinese Revolution and the triumph of communism. So a pretty dramatic first 10 years. I went to school and then college in England, where my family comes from. I worked for the BBC for a while, and since 1984, been over here, starting in some of the think tanks in Washington. So my calling is something of an analyst of our crazy, modern, wonderful world, and something of an apologist, and I'm never happier than when I'm invited, say, to campuses, speaking on behalf of the faith in the highly skeptical and sometimes secular climate you have on many of the elite universities around America. That's neat. I'm a writer and uh, interested in sharing the faith. <laughs> when you were in China, uh, it must have been interesting seeing that culture. Of course, you were a young boy at the time. Uh, did you learn any Chinese? Well, my parents spoke fluently, and my father was an expert in Chinese philosophy and calligraphy and so on. I only spoke Chinese with my friends up to the age of five, but after that I went to an English school, and then when the communist threat came, we weren't allowed to talk to the Chinese. Mm. And I finished the last two years under house arrest with my parents, cut off from the Chinese. So I only know a few Chinese words. I'm here. It would have been very useful now if I remember more, because <laughs> I go back to China every couple of years or so. Right. Now, uh, you're in the States currently. Are you going to be going over to England or someplace else soon? I seem to recall that's the case. Well, I, I live in the Washington, D.C. area. That's my home now. Mm -hmm. But Oxford's my home in Europe, and I go back three or four months every year. Very nice. Uh, in closing, maybe you could advise our listeners. I think that um, what's coming out here is is the concept of intelligent discourse and really, truly uh, listening and understanding what the other person is saying. Are there some books, uh, feel free to recommend your own, that would help us better, uh, would guide us in our interactions with others so that we can, um, you know, treat them as the image of God? Um, actually, the book that I've written on that, I literally just sent the first draft off to the publisher, so it won't be coming out until 2015. It's called Fool's Talk. And I think it's probably most original, my most original book. But it's on the recovery of persuasion rooted in the biblical understanding of how you do it. And I think it's the missing element mm. in much of our evangelism and much of our Christian communication in the public world today. We, we passionately need to recover persuasion. But I would say to your listeners, you know, there are many, including many pastors, who ignore the topic of religious freedom. It, it's secondary. And it certainly isn't the heart of the gospel. But it's a justice issue. It's also a freedom issue that gives us the ability to move out. And Christians have been the pioneers of this issue originally, and also since the Reformation. So this is a very precious issue to us. And, of course, the simple fact is that we are the most persecuted faith in the world. Now, we shouldn't fall back and play the victim card. That's deadly. That's not a Christian tactic. No. But we should be champions in the forefront of the fight for religious freedom, including religious freedom for others, even those who strongly disagree with us. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that from the Reformation comes this sense of uh, uh, religious freedom. I, I, I appreciate that. So the title but, of your book coming out is Fool's Talk? Fool's Talk. Yes. In other words, you know, we're called to be fools for Christ. That's what I call the fool bearer. The people are not really fools, but are prepared to be seen and treated as fools for Christ's sake. But you can see what I call fool-making 
is the Lord himself, he becomes foolish to subvert what we think is our wisdom, which is actually folly. Mm. So he's prepared to become foolish and weak and a non-entity. And if you look at the incarnation and the cross, it is the divine form of fool-making, and God has to do that and go to those lengths in order to reach our rebellious hearts. If we want to reach others, we've got to recover something of that subversive fool-making that gets under the skin of their worldviews, their psychologies, their defiance of the Lord, and really subverts them. So, and I call it subversion through surprise or creative persuasion. <laughs> I love it, and we'll be on the lookout for that book. Oz Guinness has been our guest today here on The Plain Answer. I want to thank you very much for taking the time from your busy schedule and, and joining us today. Thanks, Dan, and God bless you and your listeners. Well, may God bless you, too. And to our listener, if you'd like to contact us, a quick reminder that our email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And if you'd like to interact with the thinking of Oz Guinness, probably the best way is to uh, pick up a book from Oz Guinness, and that way you can understand his thinking. And uh, this is truly a, a brilliant mind here, and we can we can learn a lot from, from Oz. For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. Please join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 